The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to A Rumor of Empathy with your host, Lou Augusta. Lou is one of the premier empathy consultants in the community today. In this program, Lou and his guest experts will help you understand and expand your empathy. In doing so, you may discover a side of yourself that you never even knew existed. Now, here is Lou Augusta. Welcome to the show. This is Lou Augusta with A Rumor of Empathy. Today, my special guest is Michael Boylan. Michael is a thought leader in philosophy ethics, political engagement in the best sense of the word. He's also a storyteller and a writer, a philosopher in his own right. He's the professor and chair of the philosophy department at Marymount University in Arlington, Virginia. He's committing, committed to translating dense philosophical distinctions into language that's accessible to and usable by you and me as everyday persons. He has published 26 books and more than 120 published articles. We don't have time to list them all today. He's lectured in 11 countries, been the subject of a book of critical essays on a just society. Michael was a fellow at the Center for American Progress and is a lifetime fellow of the British Arts Trust, Rygate, Surrey. Welcome to the show, Michael. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. It's great to have you here. I know we've had uh, an arm's distance acquaintanceship for many years, and it's great to mix it up in person. So the occasion for this conversation today, I mean, there are multiple occasions. The first one is the publication of your book, Natural Human Rights, a Theory, Michael Boylan, Cambridge University Press, Cambridge.org, encouraging our colleagues to buy at retail, at least have your college or university library order a copy or two. So uh, we're going to get right into it here. Uh, as you know, I've published a number of works and thoughts, and the show itself is entitled A Rumor of Empathy. You make some reference to empathy. Uh, how does empathy play a role in your philosophical monograph? I mean, that's a question. I'm going to also say you've also got a novel out there, which we're also going to talk about. So start wherever you want. But basically, let's define our terms. What's the role of empathy here? So um, the way I, I view empathy is uh, being able to uh, uh, see uh, the world uh, through the worldview of other people that they, that, uh, that they possess. Uh, a lot of people uh, only see the world through uh, their own particular uh, worldview and uh, see anybody who acts contrary to that worldview as aberrant and, and wrong. So uh, that's a big uh, a stopping point if you want to establish community. Um, <laughs> so Yeah. 
Well, I mean, let me, you know, so the short definition, I mean, I, you know, I take a walk, so to speak, in your shoes. That's the common sense, one might say, folk philosophy or folk psychology definition of empathy. And I think it's a, it's a very good workable one. And uh, my one question would be, I mean, so I'm going to put on your shoes, which are relatively easy because we both studied philosophy, but it becomes more of a challenge if I have to put on the shoes of a refugee from Bosnia or from the Sudan or from even somebody who's grown up in the inner city, which I have not. I grew up in working class neighborhood, but not. Th- so how do, how do you parse that? Help me out there. Well, uh it's an it, it, interesting question. Um, uh, I, I think that there's an epistemological duty that people have. That is a theory of knowledge duty to uh, 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 acquaint oneself as much as possible with the plight of people uh, and the situations of people uh, in their country and around the world. And I call that the extended community worldview imperative. And uh, it tries to fight against parochialism, and it tries to uh, make people uh, cosmopolitan citizens of the world. So it, it, as much as one can, uh, using that, those facts along with imagination, and ima- imagination can be heightened uh, by reading fiction, uh, as, as trying to understand what uh, the world would be like given a certain background and a certain set of experiences that confront them. So uh, it seems to me that, that that's a, a, an extremely important starting point, and I know that uh, you and your in uh, your practice have have uh, been uh, working on methods of teaching empathy to people that are empathy challenged. Well, yeah, I mean that's and thank you for that shout out there. I mean that there are a number of rich and important distinctions you've made, and I'm going to pick one and run with the ball because. Uh, that's kind of my job here. Uh, one of the things that distinguishes your work and really in, got my attention and engaged me and made me think, hey, man, uh, we want to talk more, is that you're also, I mean, you're, you're a professor of philosophy. You're chairman of the department, right? But you're writing novels. You're engaging with fiction. And you're, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, your latest novel, Rainbow Curve, a, a novel about race Sports and Politics in America. We'll give a shout out to the publisher, Book Trope in Seattle. Uh, and you, uh, how, so I guess I want, now Lou, ask a question. So the question is, how does fiction play? You mentioned that imagination can be useful in expanding empathy. It can be useful in a number of ways of humanizing us. How, how does it, what are your thoughts? How does that play here? Well, um, uh, here's uh, uh, two ways in which we uh, uh, discuss the world. Uh, one is a very direct way uh, based on lots of empirical content, especially empirical content that we uh, parse ourselves. And, and I call that uh, direct philosophical discourse. And virtually all of philosophy uh, in, in, the, uh, in the West has been uh, 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 directed towards direct uh, discourse what they do, what one does is you create, uh, using deductive logic, uh, arguments that have uh, premises, uh, justification, inferential justifications, and, and so forth. And in the book on natural rights, there's a number of arguments that I set out uh, uh, before I uh, 
uh, analyze them in, in their exact form. Yeah, and well, yet- let me press you on this point just so that we can be sure, you know, to bring along our listeners. Now, some of them are very sophisticated. Some of them are relatively less sophisticated in the matter of complex definitions around theory of knowledge and justifying and uh let me ask you that. Let's, so let's define our terms. I mean, uh, let's get an example on the table. You know, I'm going to provide one, right? You, you're not, you, the Declaration of Independence. All men, all persons, right, will update it, are created equal and are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of property. Oops, I mean the pursuit of happiness. Uh, And Jefferson thought, so would that be, I mean, I don't want to ask a yes or no question, but uh, apparently those are some kinds of natural rights. Where did those come from? How do we justify that? Does that make sense? I mean, I know I'm kind of throwing you, talking about throwing you a curveball here, but you know, you're the batter on this one. um, uh, uh, you know, uh, Jefferson uh, it was a you know derivative uh, thinker of uh, John Locke, and so whenever you bring up anything uh, and want to go to the source, you go back to to John Locke, uh, our, his argument. Uh, I make some of those connections in a, an article uh, in the Encyclopedia of Philosophy, second edition, which is on Jefferson, and, and showed uh, you know that uh, Locke is really where it was at with him. Uh, it, that that particular piece that you uh, quoted is not uh, an argument as such. Uh, it has too many em- enthymemes in it, and I would uh, also disagree. Uh, that's the, basically that's the interest. What's called the interest-based approach. There are three ways that you can justify human rights: legal approach, interest approach, and agency approach. And Locke used uh, this interest approach. Other people, contemporaries like uh, James Griffin, uh, d- uh, does the same. It's some very respectable people work there, but it's uh, they they feel that the the only natural right you have is to pursue something. Yeah. Whereas yeah. I I think uh, an agency you need particular goods of agency given to you. You can't just say pursue something because say you, you have a less than 500 calories a day for an extended period of time, your brain deteriorates and you can't think. Thinking is necessary for a rational uh, uh, purpose of action. Therefore, uh, without that, without food, minimum food, and the UN determines uh, according to somatypes, there's some variation between 500 and 1,000 calories a day are needed. And uh, so... Uh, it seems to me you have a claims right for that in a 14-step argument that I create called the, uh, uh, the moral status of basic goods. I think that when someone thinks about uh, the goods of agency uh, carefully, they understand that they possess goods of agency because they are homo sapiens. So it's predicated scientifically at the species level. Yes. Yeah. And so that, uh, that means that you couldn't deny anybody those because uh, you'd be denying them their own human nature. And you, in a similar situation, if you were to deny them for yourself, you'd be involved in a self-contradiction. Well, let me run with the ball just – I'm so, oh, go ahead. Finish the thought, please. Yeah, so – and that's that sort of approach is uh, that direct discourse approach, which is going to be different when we'll talk a little bit later of the indirect approach, which is fiction. And it has a different style of presentation. But this direct approach, I, I think, is whenever you can use it, use it. But there are a whole lot of times you can't use it because, as Plato says in the Timaeus, in the realm of truth, there are areas in the sunlight and areas in the shade. And what's ever in the sunlight can be subject to empirical investigation and intersubjective reporting. 
then 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 that's really cool. You put that into the direct discourse mode, and most of philosophy and science are uh, are comfortable with that. However, not everything, unfortunately, uh, is there. There are some things that are uh, reside in the shade and and uh, therefore are inappropriate for direct philosophical discourse. Well, you know, let me. Uh act as kind of, you know, if this were a baseball game, I would be providing some color and commentary here because we really aren't going to be able to do a 14-step argument for purposes of this show. We'll just note that to logically justify, you know, when a person is starving, that person's judgment doesn't work. Right. We, are, we are not fully human. Somebody who is starving is forced down and back into a mode which is less than human in the full positive what human beings are really about sense. And so you're starting to build an argument there that uh, uh, you know, a basic human right, you know, you got to get something like three squares a day, right? Or at least the minimum number of calories. And, you know, we can, uh, there's a little bit of science there, but everybody knows, you know, you need, you need some basics. And so let me follow up on that because the alternative approach is fiction, which it seems to me is very powerful and opens up a lot of possibilities. Tell me about the alternative approach. I mean, let me just say one thought here, and then I'll turn it back, you know, kind of toss the ball back to you here, Michael. Fiction, it seems to me, this is my opinion, enables us to capture moral ambiguities. Uh, the world as it exists out there, you know, on, a, on any given day is noticeably lacking in black and white moral distinctions, right? I mean, you know, extremes. And fiction enables us to do some useful and interesting things around capturing and expressing natural rights. So the question is, or the request is, please say more about that. Sure. And and, and I'll, t I'll talk in, in relationship to Rainbow Curve, which is... Uh, 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 you know, it was just published right before Christmas 2014, though it has a 2015 copyright. Well, I mean, and we want to call it out and, you know, and be bold and be proud of our accomplishments. I mean, that's part of the reason to have on the show. If not now, you know, I don't want to lay it on too thick, Michael, but if not now, when? You're doing some amazing work, and I think our listeners will benefit and get value from engaging with it in the details. So Rainbow Curve, what is it? tell me about it. What's going on there? So, so it's um, it's a it's a story told uh, in uh, two different points in time. There and and each uh, uh, each of the two parts are told in succeeding chapters. So you have the first story is around 1970, and the second story occurs around 1980, about 10 years apart. And and they they alternate and they come together at the end. One of the worldview concepts is uh, 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 in in the book talks about uh, theories of retribution, and in the context of uh, racism, for example, is uh, in the United States uh, during the 1930s, 40s, and and in, even into the 50s, uh, we uh, had to have a separate baseball league for African Americans. They called the Negro Baseball Leagues. Yes, and and uh, and so. Uh, one of the, the protagonist in, in the book, uh, the father figure, is a former pitcher from the uh, from the Negro Baseball Leagues, and he's his name is Rainbow Billy Beauchamp. And uh, I see. So that's like his nickname. It brings him alive. That's right. And uh, and, and it, it takes on new meaning too in terms of our conversation in the year two thousand and fifteen when we're talking. There's rainbow means among other things. It means many things, but it means also diversity. Yes, and and 
and and the uh, there's a, a young boy, uh, Bo Mellon, uh, who's living in Milwaukee, and, and and now he's an older man. Rainbow has a dry cleaning business, and uh, uh, Bo uh, loses his mother. It's the second of his two parents. Now he's alone in the world, and he has uh, no siblings, and he's kind of at a loss. And uh, Rainbow kind of uh, uh, informally adopts him. And his real knows his real love. Bo's real love is pitching baseball, and he sees some talent, and he wants to have a chance to to kind of mentor uh, and nurture this uh, young uh, protege. We also have a uh, it's kind of a flip of a normal situation in uh, uh, racial stories in the United States, where we often have uh, you know like the help uh, that you have some uh, European descent person saving quote unquote the African American uh, people. Uh, it's, it's it's flipped here. A yeah. nice reversal. I mean, it's time yeah. for, you know, we can mix it up and get it going in both directions and do. Right, right. And and so as you're reading uh, in the first story, especially as the, the various chapters, alternating chapters for the first story, you get, uh, I present some of the history of the ne- uh, Negro Baseball Leagues. And, you know, like uh, Cool Papa Bell, for example, uh, he was supposed to be the fastest baseball player ever to play. They said he was so fast when he went to some of these old uh, hotels, by the t- he would turn off the light switch, and by the time it got dark, he was already in the bed. Huh. Funny. Yeah. Funny. So was, I mean, so uh, there are some great, there great stories, and some of these these anecdotes uh, show that despite adversity, uh, they uh, they created uh, uh, a. Uh, uh, Great games, and, and during the off season, they would go and barnstorm in Mexico and and in the Caribbean, uh, and they'd often play major league teams because in those days the major league teams didn't pay their people very much. It's not like today. Yeah, and uh, they so they would play up uh, with the uh, European descent teams, and uh, you know uh, the the better uh, American teams would beat the uh, uh, the the better. Uh, uh, major league teams, so it wasn't as it wasn't like there was a, a, a difference in ca- capacity. It was the only difference was you know that they they had no opportunity to to play. Hold that thought, Michael, because we're going to have a break at this point. Okay. At which point, the th- we're going to come back and continue the conversation about how the fiction and the narrative brings to life the humanity of all of the players in the various leagues mixing it up, a bunch of colorful characters. My special guest today is Michael Boylan, thought leader in philosophy, ethics, political engagement, chairman of the department at Marymount University, and author of Rainbow Curve and Natural Human Rights. We will be right back. It's your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services, to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues 
where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement, action, and accomplishment, and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. Friend us on Facebook to keep up with what's empowering the world. Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy. To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to arumorofempathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back to the show. This is Lou Augusta with A Rumor of Empathy, my special guest today, Michael Boylan, thought leader in philosophy, ethics, political engagement. We are mixing it up about Michael's latest publications, Natural Human Rights, A Theory, Cambridge University Press, and Rainbow Curve, a story of uh, baseball, race, and uh politics in america welcome back michael thank you so we were talking about the colorful characters uh in your multi-dimensional story um Bo, uh takes under his wing what you we would <laughs> we're going to use a certain number of euphemisms uh a struggling european descent pitcher otherwise known as a white guy playing baseball in his milwaukee neighborhood this is at a time when when Yes, baseball was about, I mean, baseball is the story of America in many ways. So it's a perfect, I'm making this up now, right? I mean, this is my, my association. I'm doing a little free association. But tell me, you know, wh- how you think this plays and, and what are the, I don't know, the challenges that these colorful characters play? Well, they, they, uh, uh, what happens is they, they, uh, they, Rainbow Billy Beauchamp sells his dry clean business to get some money. They go down to New Orleans and put together a traveling baseball team in the 1970s. And uh, they're going to travel through uh, Mexico primarily and a little bit of the Caribbean and uh, try to uh, uh, at least pay their bills and, and maybe make a little bit of money. Uh, not a, a great deal of money. So this is a little bit like the Harlem Globetrotters for basketball, an exhibition yeah. team, uh, you know, some spirited hijinks, uh, pretend to be in the umpire. I don't know. There was this one. Uh, pardon me. I'm going to free associate a little bit more here. There's a hilarious scene in that baseball movie, which is not a novel, but is still a narrative. Bull Durham, where the wild pitcher, Nuke Lalouche, beans the mascot. Uh-huh. Right. You're right. I mean, I broke out laughing. Right. I mean, it's like, yeah, he's got a great fastball, but, you know, needs a little more control, which could be a metaphor for morality, too. Well, yes, they they, they do, though, uh, encounter a great deal of uh, local police corruption in Mexico. 
and uh, they have an interracial uh, uh, team uh, that uh, is a rainbow team, and so they uh, uh, they uh, encounter some uh, challenges, and uh, and they uh, are quite intense and involve some uh, even physical violence and uh, and murder. I see. So, so it's so- a so it, there, there's a lot that stirs up, and uh, and uh, uh, the uh, second story, uh, Rainbow uh, or Bo uh, Mellon, he uh, goes to Chicago, and uh, he joins the Chicago Cubs. And uh, in the time when Chicago Cubs did not have lights, that was a big issue at one time. Yes, lights indeed. In, yeah. Lights in Wrigley Field, and uh, and and he has a he joins the Chicago Cubs, who have the unfortunate. Uh, a manager who's named Buddy Bale, and uh, Bale is you know a uh, uh, Jewish word for uh, you know devil or or uh, you know bad spirit or something bad's going to happen. Watch out! Yes, and and the owner of the Cubs is named Rupert Kakos, and Kakos is ancient Greek for bad. So I see. So he's gonna uh, he's gonna run into some badness, and we're taking a look at what what uh, limitations a good person has. Uh, when he's in the midst of a bad environment, and and who's and who's going to win, and how do they win, and that so that's that kind of sets the stage, and uh, uh, it's uh, I I can't really tell too too much more because no one would want to buy the book. I appreciate that, and we don't want you to give away how it ends for sure. What I really think may be useful and engaging for our readers to hear about, and you let me know. Um, the, the actual process of crafting this, uh, this, this story of, of, of fiction, right? How do you, how do you work? Because it's, uh, you know, it's not a 14-point argument. We don't want to go there, right? It's rather these individuals encountering, it sounds like dr- there's drama and challenges and some tough choices, some moral ambiguities and what do the people do? And, and w- what's your thinking about that? Do you, any guidance for writers out there? Well, you know, I'm a, I don't write fiction, but maybe, you know, I'll play, maybe I might have a story or two in me. What's your guidance? Well, there's two things that, that influenced the, uh, the creation of Rainbow Curve. One, when, uh, when I was living in uh, Milwaukee, uh, teaching at Marquette, um, and uh, two uh, houses down from us uh, was a man uh, named Willie Smith, and he pitched in the Negro Baseball Leagues. And, and at, uh, sometimes in the weekend... He'd have a big uh, oil, one of those uh, you know oil drums, you know that uh, that get you know, that they would almost give away because it's there after they use them, and he would uh, you know fry uh, uh, barbecue uh, beef and chicken and yeah others. yeah. Well, let me get the picture here. I mean, so you cut the drum in half, yeah. and it makes a hell of a a, a hell of a barbecue um, grill in effect, yes. and and I can I can almost smell the smoke coming off of that now. Yeah, and I, I would sit over there, you know, because it takes several hours for that. And he would tell me these stories, and I just uh, lap them up. And and uh, I had to uh, know that I had to be able to tell them back to to people someday. And then the yeah, second yeah. Uh, uh, wait, let me interrupt you because this is if there's an empathic moment here, this is one of them. Okay, right? I mean, here you have this individual who's been through some stuff. 
Yes. I mean, the, the, the members of the, the citizens and the population who have served in what was, I, you know, respectfully called the Negro League and, and the struggles around that. I mean, segue here to Ken Burns and, and the struggles, you know, of, of breaking, uh, in effect, American apartheid and all of that. And here you've got this in, in effect. I mean, this is not cultural an- anthropology, but this is a guy, you know, whose experience would be worth getting inside of. And you're listening. Yes, that was wonderful. Yeah, I, I just couldn't get enough of it, uh, but uh, I, I had to find a way to tell those some of those stories. And uh, the second moment of interest was uh, I read a book by William Faulkner called *The Wild Palms*, and and that's also uh, written in uh, uh, two stories, alternating chapters that come together at the end. And I was t- so taken with that that those two events happen near each other, and I said. Uh, I've got to tell the story in this way. Yeah. Well, here's the takeaway. I mean, fiction is from life. You know, I mean, Falk, that's what Faulkner did with the Wild Palms, but then that's what you did with your neighbor there who had some amazing stories. I mean, no pun intended. He's a colorful character in that, way, and in that sense, an interesting human being, a, you know, a human being we want to honor for the, 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 the difference that he made in his participation in, in, in creating what was possible. So I'm getting a little bit on the soapbox here. Forgive me for that. But, you know, I'm the host, so I get to spout just a little bit. And so fiction is from life so take and you take that stuff in and you kind of process it and maybe digest it to use that as a metaphor and that becomes a source of your writing right right and and then and then the the the, uh, fiction uh, becomes philosophy when it's just part of a a a larger project that that i'm uh uh, engaged in tell us about that tell us about that Yes, in 2007, uh, I, I published this book called The Extinction, a novel with Blackwell Publishers of Oxford called The Extinction of Desire. And that, that's actually part of this same project. I call them the De Anima novels after the, you know, On the Soul, when yeah. psychology used to be part of philosophy. And, yeah. uh, and, and uh, Aristotle, you know, has, has a, a famous work called De Anima. And I've got these, these four spirit. novels. The anima, animus is the spirit. And I mean, other novels, uh, I mean, other novelists, I want to say, Isabel Allende, the, 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 in the, the House of Spirits, which, which many of the listeners will be f- uh, familiar with in, in the Espanol is uh, De Anima also. Yes. And, and so, and so uh, in, in the uh, Extinction of Desire, I was, I was highlighting some uh, as- ways of knowing the world through Buddhism. And in, in Rainbow Curve, I'm highlighting two different ways of uh, understanding the world through two different sorts of Islam. One is uh, kind of uh, mystical, and there's a kind of a mystical protector of the picture in the second story and uh, in Chicago. And then there was a, a, a more uh, violent group of, of Muslims, and, and they were in that uh, 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 radical group uh, that uh, Elijah Muhammad formed uh, that wasn't yes. uh, Orthodox Muslim. They call themselves the Nation of Islam. And they were much more violent. And both of those groups are in this novel, uh, the, the, the orthodox uh, in the mystical sense, and then this uh, more uh, violent. And, and they uh, form also with uh, the daily machine, uh, uh, in the first da- daily machine, uh, a bit of, uh, of yeah. uh, fighting. And that's you get it. I'm using Chicago in, in this case as a kind of a microcosm of the political enterprise and how it's involved in both discussion and force and, and so forth. 
Well, this is ripped right out of the headlines, Michael. I mean, you know, there are so many useful things in terms of getting inside the experience of Islam. And this is a Chicago novel, The Nation of Islam, Elijah Muhammad, and Malcolm X. Malcolm Little, Malcolm X, because sons and daughters of slaves do not know who their progenitors were. So they took, in effect, the the unknown, the variable for the unknown X. And I, I wish to quote Malcolm at this point to his, uh, this is such a great quotation. And, you know, we can enjoy a lighter moment amidst all of, he, you know, he said to his community, you know, you didn't land on Plymouth Rock, Plymouth, Plymouth Rock landed on you. <laughs> and that was kind of the, exp- I mean, I thought, you know, way to, way to go, Malcolm. I mean, there's the humor and the anger. I mean, there's some anger there, right? Yes. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, if you don't get angry, you get, you know, you may, you may be not fully human and somebody crushes, you know, steps on your human rights. Let's bring it back to human rights here. Because that's kind of the two-town elephant in the middle of the living room. And I want to challenge you on this. I mean, let me – I mean, and you can answer, in ter- you know, in terms of the novels and in terms of the stories. But what if humans what – if, what if humans are beings that we define ourselves? In other words, there's no essence. I'm not sexuality. Uh, I'm not uh, – like Freud would say, I'm not productivity, like Marx would say, I'm not necessarily even agape or community, like, like Paul would say. Um, what if we're just pure possibility? I mean, so where's, where's, the, where's nature come in then? It's not like I'm a dog or a cat where you can define an essence. Okay. Is that, I challenge you, sir. Sure, I, I have an answer right ready for you. Let's have it. <laughs> Since I'm not going to give the whole 14 uh, <laughs> argument. I, me, I mean, I got to say it. Thank you for that. But no, <laughs> the executive summary. Yes. Well, now let me just uh, talk about the first three premises. They, yeah. Okay. The first premise uh, uh, says uh, uh, all, uh, all humans by nature desire to be good. And and uh, that's a controversial uh, premise. And yes. that was a there was a one day uh, conference in Bochum, Germany, uh, on on this uh, uh, topic. And uh, they uh, they several people thought I was dead wrong. And I remember in, once I was lecturing in, in Cambridge at, at uh, in UK, uh, I, I mentioned that someone said, "Hey, what about the prologue of Richard the Third? Yeah, and and he you know talks about how he's now is the season of our discontent and how he's going to do these evil things and and it's going to uh, enjoy it, and I said, well, you know what? I think Shakespeare was just wrong, and the whole room started laughing because they love Shakespeare so much there in UK. Yeah, but uh, uh, my my contention, my nature is that what does it mean to be human? Is desiring to do something you think is good, like if I want to scratch my head because it itches, I think that's good. So I, I scratch it instead of just letting it itch and unscratched. Yeah. If I'm hungry, I, I try to get something to eat because I think that's good. Now you have a fully two minutes before our next break to give me the next two premises. If we don't make it, it's okay because we can continue afterwards. Yes. So so how do you how do you achieve that which you think is good? Uh, uh, it's only through action, human action, purpose of action towards what you want to achieve. So. Uh, all people by nature uh, desire to act, and then therefore in an operational way, the whole argument is about what it means to act. And we get to action through our wanting to uh, achieve that which we believe to be good. 
And, and a lot of people, you know, there are uh, criminals and so forth who think that it's really good to get a lot of money as quick as possible, and they're just wrong. So the nature of evil, you have to have evil if you have good, is to be, uh, make a mistake. So there I'm following Plato and, and St. Augustine, and uh, the idea evil is a mistake. That's the nature of evil. If I knew the good, I would do it. But I am fairly ignorant, and I mistake my means. Sometimes, though, I mistake my ends, and that's problematic. That's that's true. I mean, uh, uh, you could be all wrong about the ends. Uh, you might think that money or 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 power or various things are are proper ends. You devote yourselves and, and means to get them because uh, true. You can be mistaken about the means or the ends. And so we're going to hold that thought because we're going to go to a break and we're going to come back and continue engaging with this, given. What is, in order to understand human rights, I'm going to paraphrase as best I can, in order to understand human rights, we need to understand human nature, and that's a big job to say the least. I'm going to further challenge you, Michael, when we come back. I am talking with Michael Boylan, chairman and professor of philosophy, Marymount University, and author, Natural Human Rights and the fiction novel, Rainbow Curve. We'll be right back. your world. Motivate. Change. Succeed. VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com Lou Augusta is one of the premier educators and empathy consultants in action in the community today. As the author of three books on empathy and a Ph.D. from the University of Chicago Philosophy Department on Empathy and Interpretation, Lou provides three services. Empathy Consulting and Education, in which he coaches individuals and organizations on how to expand the results they are getting in their life, business, or organization by expanding their empathy. Individual Psychotherapy Services, to help with recovery from trauma or other confronting personal issues, where Lou's commitment is to provide a gracious and generous listening, as providing access to shifting out of resignation into engagement action, and accomplishment, and delivering the empathy training seminar and workshop for groups where the participants get access to the deep infrastructure of empathy. For further details, see Lou on the web at louagusta.com. That is spelled L-O-U-A-G-O-S-T-A or phone 773-203-0269. Again, louagusta.com or phone 773-203-0269. Follow us on Twitter for more great ideas at Voice America Empowerment. You are listening to A Rumor of Empathy, To reach Lou Augusta or his guest today, please call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to arumorofempathy at gmail.com. Now, back to the program. Welcome back. This is Lou Augusta with A Rumor of Empathy, my special guest today, Michael Boylan, Thought Leader and Professor of Philosophy and Chair of the Department at Marymount College, author. 
Natural Human Rights, a Theory, and the novel, among other novels, a prolific writer, Rainbow Curve. Welcome back, Michael. Hi. So before the break, we were mixing it up. I was claiming to need guidance and instruction about what is human nature? To have a human right and a natural human right, I need to know what human nature is, or at least have some sense. And I'm going to challenge you now. No softball questions here, sir. If human beings are pure potentiality, pure possibility, what about communities that get it all wrong? I'm thinking of Nazi Germany in 1933, 39, 41 through 45, or Stalinist murderers. These are the bad guys. They tried to create a community based on genocide and eliminating whole sections of the population. We don't need to go into all the details. Uh, what 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 about that? I mean, how do we know? Yeah, well, there's there's two two ways. Since I right before the break, I mentioned that uh, following uh, Plato and Augustine, that uh, I believe uh, evil to be uh, a mistake. Uh, but there, there there are various nuances of the the way we make mistakes. Um, in in a uh, short story that I, I wrote in my uh, book that I did with Charles Johnson. Uh, on uh, that uh, unites direct and indirect uh, philosophy. That's philosophy through stories that Charles, uh, Charles and I wrote, and then also yeah, I, I heard an, a nice uh, interview with you and Charles, which is out there on Philosophical TV. We want to give a shout out to that. You guys are doing some amazing work. Remind me of the title again. Well, the title. Uh, well, the title of the book is Philosophy and Innovative Introduction, and uh, Westview Press out of Boulder, Colorado. Okay. Now, the story, though, that I'm, I'm thinking of that I wrote is called uh, uh, Heidegger and Eichmann in Jerusalem. Ah, very provocative. Yes. Say and, more. And, and, and one of the things that's explored in there, as you know, that Hannah Arendt uh, was a student of, of Heidegger and, and a lover of Heidegger. And in the story, uh, there are two parts in, in the story, but in, in the parts I'm talking about right now, she is trying to get Heidegger to uh, recognize the, 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 uh, the realism of what the Nazis are doing. And Heidegger it just kind of uh, uh, makes it all disappear in the smoke of philosophy and, he, and, and, and uh, spurious distinctions that are nominalistic only. And he, he, he's, he so divorced himself from reality that, he's, that he j justifies it. That's a, one sort of ignorance in a very high level uh, but it allows people to do terrible things because they they find some very abstract way uh, that in some possible world in which it might make sense. Yeah, and and uh, and so it's kind of I explore that in in the book. And Hannah uh, actually leaves him as she did in in real life uh, and went to another university. And uh, Heidegger, you know, he uh, was official member of the party, and he was uh, he took on uh, the presidency of a school for in the name of the Nazis to run it as a Nazi school. And the rector at Freiburg yes. Universität Freiburg. I mean, this you know, truth is stranger than fiction. This is this this narrative is based on a true story. Right, and 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 so this is one one avenue of the ignorance, and and many people uh, have accused philosophers of this because many people, when they take a class in philosophy, they think that the philosopher is kind of living in some sort of made up world, and 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 can't get back to uh, the concrete existence that everyone else uh, is in, and it was even accentuated more in the old days when people, uh, many philosophy professors, smoked pipes during class. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, I, we were there. We were there. And but yeah. I want to interrupt. I mean, because this is so rich and powerful. Uh, Arendt, among, Hannah Arendt, among other things, says, you know, one of the things that leads to real evil is thoughtlessness. And yeah. at a certain point, yeah, yes, Heidegger. I mean, there's a lot of debate possible here. He was kind of trying to think, but I'm not so sure he got it right. And and you want to what what kind of actual authentic thinking? I would argue, I would suggest. You want to include your emotions, you want to include your affects, you want to include your relatedness and humanity in your thinking, which is what I thought Arendt, Hannah Arendt, tried to do in her lectures on the life of the mind, um, and that arguably Heidegger stopped doing at a certain point. Uh, yes, yes I, and, and, and this gets back to the uh, Natural Human Rights book, Chapter 6. Uh, and the I've got it right here, Michael. Yes, there's the, I have the personal worldview imperative, and uh, there's four parts to this. And in the first part, uh, I just the four parts are completeness, coherence, connection to a theory of the good, and applicability in the real world. And in that first part, that completeness, you want to be able to say, I have a worldview in which nothing can strike me in which I don't have an answer. And the way to do that is to create two goodwills, the rational goodwill, which we're, many people are familiar with, but then there's the emotional goodwill, which is uh, something that as very few philosophers, particularly in the canon, almost none, have, have addressed. And I, starting with uh, uh, an idea of empathy that is seeing the world from somewhere else, it allows you the p potentiality of interacting with a person. And if you interact on a level way and create level sympathy, level sympathy as opposed to unlevel. Unlevel sympathy is, oh, I feel sorry for you, you my inferior, and I pat you on the head. Yeah. But level sympathy is when you're, you're connecting, you're giving and taking in a reciprocal way. And, and it's my contention, if you create level sympathy – a connection of your two emotions with another person, you will care for that person when they are in need. And that will be an action response that's grounded in the world because it's grounded in the emotion of another person who's living on the earth, who you're seeing as separate from yourself and who you're uh, reciprocally interacting with. That care response, therefore, is is for the benefit of that other person. It's not selfish. It's not uh, for yourself. You put the, that whole thing together, and I call it love. Philosophical love. Brilliant. I mean, it's powerful. And it, it, among other things, it's also, I would add, a connection with the humanity of the other individual. And, you know, we could say love is a many splendored thing at this point. I mean, uh, it's that which builds community. And it's arguably, we need a whole lot more of that. Yes. And, and then, and then, and then, from the personal worldview imperative, I create uh, several different community uh, uh, imperatives because I think people must live in community and not just the, their, the community they're uh, in in the proximate uh, uh, a geographical sense, but other communities. But the communities I envision are communities that, that work to make themselves heterogeneous. And, and so often people, and some people in kin selection theory and philosophy of biology, they think that we have this natural urge uh, 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 to because they, they say we want to move our own genes to the next filial generation, that we, we have this natural urge towards homogeneity, that may or may not be the case. But even if it is the case biologically, intellectually, we have to move towards heterogeneity because that's where innovation occurs and, and that's where – Well, uh, that's, oh, that's right. right. I mean – let me second that, a big amen or roger that on that point. I mean, biologically, we are, yeah, we've got a lot 
going biologically, and we are more than our biology. I, a man is more than an XY chromosome, a woman is more than an XX. And uh, maybe the thoughtfulness, the thinking, the authentic thinking, which Arendt was referring to and which we discussed briefly before the break, consists in saying, well, biologically, I may be predisposed to eat my food raw, that is, tear the meat off the bones of the antelope with my bear. You know, we're not talking vegetarian here. <laughs> we're I mean, but maybe it'd be more civilized to cook my food. The raw and the cook have got something going for them, too. Not that, not that raw food is bad. Some of it is really tasty and important. But the diversity to which you referred. Yes, and so uh, if we have rules and uh, how to structure these communities, uh, they're diverse. And you, every member has to pull their weight. Uh, I, no free riders allowed in, in the shared community worldview imperative. Uh, and... Uh, uh, this structuring both the, therefore a personal worldview imperative and the community puts me halfway between something, some things that are called uh, liberalism, which is extreme individualism, and, and communitarianism, which can be interpreted sometimes as extreme uh, you know, community orientation. I see myself as right in, in the middle, having uh, acknowledging the need for both. Well, finding the middle way is so important and so challenging. I mean, I think uh, I'm going to keep beating the drum on what is authentic thinking. Maybe we need to roll up into that. No free riders. Am I a free rider? Well, if I think I am, I want to stop and pause for thought and take responsibility for my contribution to the community. And for, you know, I mean, there's whole lots of levels, right, which you allude to and you engage with in some detail. Uh, and finding the way between a kind of John Stuart Mill libertarian liberalism, which means liberal in a different way than we often use the word, and the communitarianism, which is some of what uh, you find in uh, certain governments like, uh, I don't know, the People's Republic of China comes to mind, or let's just say those that don't necessarily have a background of Republican democracy the way we do in the USA. Um, so I'll just throw that right out there. So back to, to, to natural rights. And so we're up to step three. Yeah, so, so uh, we now have uh, uh, admitted that uh, all people uh, desire to act uh, commit purpose of action so that they can realize what they believe to be good. Then the next parts of the argument uh, uh, describe uh, how, uh, what do you really need to act? And whatever it is, uh, what is the nature of the predication? Uh, up until now, people who have, have tried to create agency arguments start with a, a speaker like John or Mary individually, and then they say, what does John and Mary think? And then they try to move uh, what we call in logic to the universal generalization operation, and then they fall prey to some problems of logic. So by I know I fall prey to them all the time, but uh, yes. but you know a good generalization has its uses. I'm sorry, continue. So I stay at the level of the generalization only, and 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 then uh, make subsumptions at the end of the argument. So the idea then I, I don't fall prey to that logical error that some people have made who who've tried similar strategies. Uh, so if you, I create these 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 various needs um, that people have, and I call it, and the needs are proximate uh, or remote to agency. Now, the most proximate are the biological needs of agency, like food, uh, water, clean water, 
uh, sanitation, protection from unwanted bodily harm, uh, and which I include uh, protection from bacteria. <laughs> uh, so some ba- basic health care. You know, I like it. Yes. So you have approximately one minute. If you haven't finished, I mean, you're getting close to the conclusion of the argument, but take a minute and, and give us the, that which has been demonstrated here. So, so, that's, so the idea is I, I move in uh, five levels of things that are increasingly remote from agency. And the, the farthest away is I call third-level secondary goods, and they are uh, basically the ability to uh, get material wealth that exceeds your, your peer group. And, and the idea is whenever there's a conflict between these levels, the ones that are closest to agency trump. So this gives you an argument for progressive taxation, for example. If we have to tax very wealthy people to give food and clothing, protection from unwanted bodily harm, and so forth to uh, people who don't have it, uh, there's no one could argue against it. There's an absolute duty to do that. Sounds good. Now, we're coming up on the the top of the hour, and I want to take a moment. I don't want to. I actually do take a moment to express my thanks and appreciation, Michael, Michael Boyland, for joining the show today and mixing it up about human rights. And what inspires me about your work is you get at the humanity and the relatedness. And that's kind of a high-level paraphrase of empathy. So in many ways, we're on the same page. And in many ways, we have to continue 101 issues and distinctions that we haven't completely uh, exhausted or completed today. So once again, thank you, Michael Boylan, thought leader, philosophy, ethics, political engagement, professor and chair of philosophy at Marymount University and author, Natural Human Rights, a Theory, Cambridge University Press, and the latest fiction novel, Rainbow Curve. Next week, we have an exciting show coming up for you. My special guest will be Jonathan Brent, executive director of YIVO. YIVO is the Institute for Jewish Research, founded in 1925 in Vilna, Poland, a key, by key European intellectuals, including Albert Einstein and Sigmund Freud, to record and study the history, language, literature, and culture of the Jews of Eastern Europe. Join me next week. See you then. for tuning in to A Rumor of Empathy with Lou Augusta. Please join us again next Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. We hope to see you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit VoiceAmericaEmpowerment.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.